You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 486 of this podcast. Today is Friday, October 21st, 2022, and we've got a lot to get to in this episode, including but not limited to personality tests and a article by Kevin D. Young as he makes the case for kids at First Things Magazine. But first of all, a few items in the news, some current events type discussion. Michael Whitaker at The Daily Wire published a report two days ago titled Rising Fuel Prices Spark Mass Protests in More Than 90 Countries, in which he, among other things, points out that a third of the countries in which street protests occurred in 2022 had no recorded demonstrations of that kind in 2021. That is an interesting detail, an interesting fact. Another interesting takeaway from this report is that the United States of America is ranked 13 from the top in a survey of the 44 mostly developed nations as the survey is measuring year-over-year inflation in Q1 2022. We are 13th from the top, which is to say there's about a dozen that are doing worse than we are, but there's only a dozen mostly developed countries that are doing worse than the U.S. with regards to inflation this year. But here's a question for you. What is driving inflation? I am reading The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin right now, and it is giving a much clearer answer to that question than I've ever had previously. And when I'm done with it, of course, I'll come back with an episode reviewing it because there's a lot to talk about here. But the short answer for right now, the short explanation is that the issue comes down to the printing of money out of thin air. And a really important takeaway you need to grasp is that inflation is a hidden tax. If lawmakers and presidents were upfront in how much of your wealth they are effectively taking away through the devaluation of currency, their political careers would be over. And that's why they don't just raise taxes overtly. They print money through central banking. But that is to say also their political careers should be all the more over for the combination of taking your money and deceiving you about how they're doing it with regards to inflation. The real power behind the political process in the U.S., and around the world for a hundred years and more, according to the creature from Jekyll Island, has been an international banking cartel. They effectively own the politicians from both parties, the political process itself thereby, and they control the media, outlets, and corporations on which we depend for information, products, services, and income. Another way to put this is we are serfs. (laughs) This is serfdom on a global scale. And the parties in question have us really truly enslaved and locked in enslavement to them via debt. 
They play all sides in major conflicts. They fund and loan money to all sides in major conflicts, work behind the scenes to stir up crises, and then they play off of those crises to raise debt. And by that debt, by the means of that debt, they keep everyone beholden to, obligated to, and essentially enslaved to them and what they want out of the world, out of us. So essentially, what we're talking about is a continuation of the last book that I read and finished, None Dare Call It Conspiracy. This is, admittedly, a conspiracy theory, but the more I listen to this book in particular, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, the more details, the more specificity is laid out in connection with the big missing pieces for me otherwise, the more compelling I find this narrative, I think there's a lot to it. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no hope. It doesn't mean we should give up on the political process. A great deal of what is actually a question of righteousness and wickedness, sin and folly, or else godliness, really has been declared political. And as Christians, we cannot feed into that. We can't accept that. We can't just stay out of what is called political because we're supposed to be about the gospel. No, we're in the interest of advancing the gospel, in the interest of making disciples of all nations. We are supposed to call for repentance and a turning away from sin. And so insofar as sin has been made political, we can't just be silent on it and say, ah, yes, okay, that's your domain. I give that to you. I cede that to you. And now the only command I recognize from God is to be subject to governing authorities. Full stop. Whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do. Render unto Caesars. That means everything belongs to Caesar. No, no. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. That is to say, all things belong to God ultimately. And we can't, we can't just say, ah, yes, okay, I'm a slave. Therefore, I have no responsibilities. I have no rights. I have no voice. I have no options. This is of a piece with why I don't watch horror movies, because I refuse to accept that there are evils which we are at the mercy of, as though the evils are all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. They know all. No, no. That's what's wrong with horror movies. That's why I don't watch them. And that's what's wrong with conspiracy theories, as some people conclude their options from conspiracy theories. And this is a big one. It's a really big one. We'll talk more about it in future. But for the time being, I do find it credible that banking interests and central banking interests and international monetary fund shenanigans and World Trade Organization shenanigans and Council on Foreign Relations and United Nations uh, shenanigans are the cause of, and not for no reason, not accidentally, most of the crises of the past 100 to 150 years. I have no problem believing that, especially with the evidence that's been laid out, the case that's been made in this book that I'm reading right now and the previous one I was reading. But that does not mean 
that God is impotent, and it does not mean that his people, the church, are impotent. So take heart. He's overcome the world, even if the world hasn't quite come to terms with that just yet. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we know who wins in the end. But nevertheless, it is concerning that inflation is only higher in 12 other nations, mostly developed nations around the world. That's very concerning. It's also important that we understand that inflation is a hidden tax. Your taxes are going up even if the IRS has announced that they're going to increase our deductibles and what kind of a return most Americans can expect to get this coming January, February, March, whenever you file your taxes. I file as soon as possible, as quick as I get my W-2s in order, uh, usually the day of actually online. I file my own taxes, do my own taxes. It's very easy with H&R Block online. But even if, and this is true to form, uh, even if the deductions have increased, don't take that as some magnanimous gesture. They are raising the taxes other ways, and they are giving us some of our own money back, but they are taking their cuts left, right, and center at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the process and making us debtors. They are making us slaves. We have to be clear about that. Don't go voting for people who are telling you they're going to spend all this money, they're going to raise all this money from printing money, which is to say it it will devalue whatever money you have. It just will. And that's a kind of theft, honestly. But speaking of manipulation, control, enslavement, global governance, et cetera, et cetera, Ryan Saavedra at The Daily Wire published a piece this morning titled TikTok Responds to Explosive Report Alleging Plans to Track Locations of Specific Americans. So Forbes magazine reported on how TikTok's Chinese parent company, look it up, it's true, TikTok is a Chinese entity, uh, is planning to use the app to track the location of specific Americans. Now, Forbes magazine, it should be noted, is also uh, not guiltless with regards to this uh, conspiracy and the you know, hoisting of, uh, fostering of crises constantly over the past century and a half, century or so. But Forbes magazine did an expose talking about how TikTok was going to use uh, location data on specific Americans. And this should be very concerning. This should be very troubling. If you are a Chinese American, for instance, if you are an American who is critical of the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, imagine very easily with me scenarios where, let's say yours truly is very critical of the Chinese Communist Party. And let's say I am trying to warn my countrymen of what it means for our freedoms that China is colonizing us, putting police stations here in the U.S. and places like New York, uh, putting police stations in Canada and in major European cities supposedly to help Chinese nationals abroad, but really to crack down on all criticism of the Chinese Communist Party back at home. 
let's suppose TikTok doesn't like what I'm saying. The Chinese Communist Party, the government of China doesn't like what I'm saying. They see me as a potential threat as I'm warning about their deeds, their dirty deeds, doing exposés, or I'm bringing attention to people in our uh, government here in the U.S., or people in academia, or people in corporate America, people in the media who are owned by the CCP or very friendly towards the CCP for various reasons. Let's say the CCP decides they don't like that and they've got my location information, location data. They know my habits. They know where I typically uh, am going to be. How hard would it be in our day and age for some very targeted uh, trouble to be made for me with that location data with my being tracked by TikTok. I'm not using TikTok, but there's lots of other technologies. There's lots of other uh, backdoors through apps and things that you might sign up for that can give away your private information to folks who in the future may be looking to identify folks who are going to be trouble and re-educate them or make sure that they can't get loans or make sure that they get very targeted harassment, or make sure that they have a hard time getting a job, make sure that they have a hard time you know, securing transportation or housing or social standing or authority or whatever, right? What have you. It's a very concerning thing that the CCP is infiltrating American society in this kind of a targeted way. Think of the difference between carpet bombing in World War II and precision-guided munitions in more recent years and decades. It was a big to-do that the Allies, for instance, were dropping bombs on German and Japanese cities and incinerating and suffocating and blowing up men, women, and children, whether they were combatants or not, in hostile powers And then in subsequent decades, the military commissioned uh, weapons manufacturers to come up with technologies that would allow for a much more precise, a much more narrowly defined target to be taken out. We're going to guide this missile in. It's only going to blow up this house. It's going to leave the houses on either side relatively untouched. As long as we've identified the right target, we can take out that car, that house, that building that enemy, enemy combatant, and hopefully, at least this is the way it's built, this is the way it's advertised, not have any collateral damage, not take out anybody that's next to them who's um, you know, a, an innocent man, woman, or child who's just nearby. Well, now let's recognize that World War III, n- no conspiracy theories attached, has for years been built as a war that will be waged in the digital space and that you will have targeted hacking of infrastructure and corporations. People's power supply will be interrupted. Their water supply will be interrupted. Their transportation uh, network will be interrupted through targeted hacking of the systems that automate these things. Now, consider the social ramifications of a kind of social credit score being hoisted 
on the U.S., on American citizens through ESG scores and whatnot, banks only being willing, speaking of banks, only willing to lend to individuals and businesses and organizations who are willing to fall in line with the broader goals of combating climate change or COVID policy. Hey, you've got to get this vaccine if you want to be approved for a loan. Hey, you've got to affirm the LGBTQ movement or transgenderism or gender theory being taught in the public schools or what have you. You've got to affirm CRT or if we find that you're critical of these things, well then, I'm sorry, we can't approve your loan to buy a house or a vehicle or what have you. Or we're sorry, but you're on a no-fly list. You know, how easy would it be if the CCP has your info and they identify you as a problem because of what you've said online or what you're trying to post to TikTok or whatever? How easy would it be for the CCP to do some very targeted hacking to make life difficult for individual Americans in a way that snips and prunes them from being able to affect meaningful change or mobilize their countrymen. So this is some pretty dark stuff. This is really, really dark stuff. I'm not even saying that the CCP is going to necessarily show up at your door here in the U.S., although if they have police stations, I suppose they conceivably could. But I'm not saying that the CCP is going to show up at your door with a hit squad and uh, assassinate you physically. But if they can do some very targeted hacking to eliminate your potential for political influence or social influence, they can basically effectively uh, control the destiny of the United States of America. There's lots of other reports I've read with regards to TikTok that the algorithms promote very silly, vapid, socially corrosive things here in the U.S. For instance, twerking. Now that's the, that's the most uh, obvious example I can think of. Or the Tide Pod challenge that was popular a few years ago where teenagers and young adults were eating Tide Pods and it was making them very sick. You know, for instance, TikTok promotes those things and makes them popular. Uh, Stop making stupid people famous is uh, <laughs> it's a great slogan, but TikTok is adopting exactly the opposite uh, approach to engagement with young Americans online. And in China, by contrast, they they do adopt that approach. Stop making stupid people famous. That's what their social credit score is about. That's what they are trying to do when they say, ah, the algorithm is going to boost young Chinese uh, men and women who are doing things that we believe are socially beneficial, like you know, inventing something or helping uh, an old person to cross the street or what have you, right? Essentially, in a very mercenary, utilitarian way, the CCP via TikTok in China is promoting social good. Uh, here in the US, they're promoting social evils. And apparently, a lot of us love them for it. But as we all know, contradiction is the most persuasive form of argumentation. And thus, according to the reporting by Ryan Zavedra, the Daily Wire, TikTok 
disproved, and I quote, disproved Forbes reporting by saying that uh, it, and I quote, continues to lack both rigor and journalistic integrity. So there's a little ad hominem there. And uh, also, I quote, they do not collect the GPS locations from U.S. users. So there you have it. You heard them. They don't do that. TikTok is totally safe, and you have nothing to fear from the spread of global Chinese communism. Uh, Do you feel better? I know I do. They said they don't do it, guys, so they must not do it. They must be telling the truth, clearly. Uh, In other news, (laughs) J.P. Chavez, my neighbor two houses down, asks whether I think there's a benefit to Christians taking personality tests like for instance, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Do I think there's a benefit or what benefit do I think there is to Christians taking personality tests like these? I guess my answer in part would be, why wouldn't there be a benefit? Now, to answer that question, with which I'm answering JP's question, some, like my cousin Tim Mullet over at the Bible Bashed, podcast, now affiliated with Protestia, lest anyone be allowed to forget. My cousin Tim Mullet believes that you shouldn't use these personality tests in any meaningful way, maybe as entertainment, but nothing beyond that. Uh, He actually published an episode two days ago to YouTube very short episode titled what should Christians think about personality tests? I did watch and listen to it this morning. And my takeaway from his position, what he is communicating is that our choice is between following Christ and repenting of our sins on the one hand, or taking personality tests to try to justify our sins on the other hand. Uh, there was a little bit more in there that he threw in for nuance, but it wasn't very clearly stated. It wasn't very confidently stated. It wasn't very authoritatively stated. Uh, it was very much all over the place and qualified to death and half sentences interrupted by half sentences and a lot of hemming and hawing. But the long and short of it is this is a total non sequitur in my view. Uh, with that kind of reasoning, you could plug literally anything you don't like into the formula he's using to try and wedge Christians away from doing whatever you don't want them to do. And suppose I told you, for instance, I'm going to go to the kitchen and make myself a turkey sandwich. Would you reply that I shouldn't need a turkey sandwich because I have Jesus? Would you accuse me of making into a functional savior, either the act of going to the kitchen or the kitchen itself as a destination or the turkey sandwich as a desired object to fill my belly, would you accuse me of turning those things into a functional savior? Would you even think to go there and imply that I don't need the kitchen because I've got Jesus? I don't need to go anywhere because I'm going to abide in Christ. I don't need to be filled with a turkey sandwich because I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. No, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. At best, this is an intellectually lazy way to argue. And I see it 
more and more. The more I'm looking for it, the more I see it, which could be confirmation bias, or it could be that there's just an intellectually lazy way of reasoning and arguing, which far too many of our leaders in American Christianity have settled for and taught one another to, uh, you know, embrace and, uh, you know, imitate after. At best, it's intellectually lazy. At worst, it's spiritually abusive. And it's not faithful to the truth. It's not a careful handling of the truth. It's not a respectful way to relate to our fellow Christians or creation. Uh, in short, it's pharisaical. This is a pharisaical way to relate to things, to try and hyper-spiritualize. It would be definitely hyper-spiritualizing if I said, I'm going to go to the kitchen and make myself a turkey sandwich. And you said, oh, I don't need to be filled with turkey sandwiches. I'm filled with the spirit because that's biblical. But turkey sandwiches apparently aren't because you don't find turkey sandwiches in the Bible. You know what? You don't have to actually find turkey sandwiches specifically in the Bible to have a uh, <laughs> a permission from the good Lord above and a blessing from the good Lord above to receive a turkey sandwich with joy and thanksgiving and to enjoy it. And just for the record, I don't need a turkey sandwich, but I really would love one right now, actually. Turkey sandwich on some ciabatta bread with a little bit of lettuce and some cranberry chutney and some provolone cheese and maybe even a slice of uh, roast beef to make it interesting. A little bit of spicy mustard. Mm. Man, that sounds amazing. And if you bring me one, I will thank the good Lord for it and for you. And I'm not going to have a seared conscience over whether that turkey sandwich has suddenly become a functional savior if I enjoy it too much or if I like it too much or if I speak too well of you for bringing it to me. No, no, no. That's ridiculous. That's absurd and abusive if you're serious and if you have uh, if you've had an opportunity to reevaluate that and you've stubbornly decided not to, then I am calling you out. I am saying you're a spiritually abusive person and you're warped and, uh, and, and your conscience is clearly seared if that's the way you approach things. Uh, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. I'm not going to beat around the bush. That's wicked. And shame on you. But on a happier note, why would there be a benefit, potentially? Because that can be ridiculous as far as a way of warning people off of something that might have a legitimate use and application. It might be actually very helpful uh, in the proper context, taken with thanksgiving and enjoyed. Why would there be a benefit is a separate question. Because quite honestly, there might not be a benefit regardless of whether the reasoning uh, you know, one person gives against a thing is sound, right? So to dismiss a certain complaint is not the same as saying that there is no room for a legitimate complaint against personality tests. What's the benefit? For starters, Proverbs 4.23 says, to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it 
flow the springs of life. And this applies in a lot of ways to this discussion. For one, it applies to protecting and guarding your heart from certain wolves in sheep's clothing who are looking for ways to trip you up or to burden you or to browbeat you. Guard your heart from them. Do, really do. Jesus issued his strongest worded warnings against the Pharisees for just this kind of stuff because it is toxic and corrosive and wicked. And don't imitate it. Keep your heart with all vigilance also applies to the personality tests. So do guard your heart when it comes to approaching a personality test in case it would lead you astray or say that certain things are always good and positive just because they're special or unique to you. No, no, man is not inherently good. That is important to remember. Do guard your heart with all vigilance from pop psychology, which seeks to flatter you and affirm everything that you think, feel, say, do, choose, are. But the flip side is for the Christian. And since this is a question specifically for Christians, we need to retool some of the qualifiers that are being thrown out here. So consider the Puritans, for instance. The Puritans have this phrase, and I came across it in the rare jewel of Christian contentment specifically. Jeremiah Burroughs talks about being a student of your own heart. And the Puritans were really big on this. This is no small part of why they were Puritans in the first place. And it can go too far, and it becomes a sentimentalism where everything is emotion, everything is how you feel. Pietism, German pietism, I think has done a lot of damage as much or more as relativism has, but I think upstream of relativism in many ways. Pietism and always needing to feel a certain way in order to know that we're close to God and then counting for nothing, doing the right thing, saying what is true being about the right things, if you don't feel a certain way, it doesn't count for nothing. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. You will always grapple with the kinds of things that Paul writes about in the New Testament. And the point of the grappling should not be, if it ain't perfect, don't try at all. If it ain't perfect, what's the point? I give up. No, no. But he gives more grace. My grace is sufficient For thee, God says to Paul, when Paul asks repeatedly for the removal of a thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is shown perfectly in weakness, God says. Wretched man that I am, Paul says. The good that I would do, I do not do. And the evil that I would not do, that is the very thing that I do. And yet, God's good pleasure is that for a time we grapple with that and by his grace we overcome. More to the point, in him we overcome. More to the point, 
He overcomes what is in us that is untoward. He takes out our heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh instead. And that's part of how we know that he is in us, is that we are convicted of our sins. We don't enjoy them. We don't celebrate them. We don't affirm them. We don't throw parades for them. We don't ask for entire months to be dedicated to celebrating and affirming our sin. No, no, it grieves us. That doesn't mean that it's all gone, but it grieves us and we are continually going back to our maker and asking forgiveness and confessing our sins to him and pleading that he would help us with our unbelief, that he would help us in the midst of our weakness and show his strength perfectly in our weakness. But the Puritans, to that end, have this phrase they call being a student of your own heart. Jeremiah Burroughs talks about it. And I view the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, as a potential tool to the end of being a student of your own heart. Unapologetically, I could qualify what I'm saying right now to death. And yes, there are reasons to be cautious, but that is to say, if this is your motivation, sola scriptura is not the same thing as solo scriptura. Sola scriptura means that you regard God's word as your only infallible authority for Christian life and practice and doctrine. And yet, as we talked about in our biblical training group last Friday, we have again one tonight on special revelation. General revelation is testified to in God's word. And yes, the ungodly, wicked men suppress the truth through their unrighteousness, because their deeds are dark. And yet, they cannot suppress all of it. And this is why Christians can and really have no other choice but to be in the world and to work with general revelation. So low scriptura would have us believing that if you're reading anything besides your Bible— if you're listening to anything besides the red letters of Jesus, and some crazies out there actually think that, by the way, that actually the only inspired, infallible parts of the Bible are the red letters where Jesus is himself speaking. Everything else, uh, maybe, which is absurd because Jesus, <laughs> when he is in the red letters, again and again and again, says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He quotes and references them constantly. But, alas, I digress. Consider Psalm 139, which says, in part, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. Verses 13 to 14 you're no doubt familiar with, of that same Psalm 139, say, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I see no reason 
within the context of this psalm or within the context of the broader revelation of God's word in the Bible, I see no reason why this truth would be confined to our physical bodies. Like it's just our organs and our tissues and our skin and our muscles and our bones that God knit together in our mother's womb. What the psalmist is talking about here is every aspect of our being, not just our physical bodies, also our hearts and our minds and our souls. We are fearfully and wonderfully made and knit together by God most high. Consider also 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And when Paul talks about the different giftings God has given to the individual members of the body, it would be cruel and perverse to conclude that the only differentiations between us are sins to rebuke and repent of. For instance, someone is introverted and we rebuke them being introverted. Someone thinks more than they feel or they feel more than they think and we rebuke them for being emotional or for being analytical. Yes, Paul is specifically talking about spiritual gifts, but if God gives different spiritual gifts to the members of the body, and if we know, just looking at faces, some people have some very odd-looking faces. Some people have very beautiful-looking faces. Some people have very ugly-looking faces. Some people just they look just different. Just unusual proportions. So we know, except in the case of twins or these odd lookalikes where somebody finds an old photograph from 150 years ago and it looks just like Keanu Reeves. We know, except in some rare cases like that, that God has made us unique, particular, special. And there's a commonality to the fact that even though we're unique individuals, we're all part of mankind, we all have certain things that we grapple with and which are alike. But the point of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, with regards to Christians in particular, is that you are members individually of the body. And it is neither a contradiction of the fact that we're individuals to say that we're part of the body, nor is it contradictory to the fact that we're part of the body, one unified whole, to say, you have this particular gifting or this particular circumstance or this particular personality or temperament, which on some level has been given to you by God himself. And now, how does God want you to edify the body with that? Not through removing the organs and demanding the function. C.S. Lewis talks about this. I believe in the abolition of man. He says, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. I may have the order somewhat off, but the point is there have been moments 
in church history, where take Origen, for instance, a misreading of a certain passage leads some men to conclude they should castrate themselves, for instance, because that would be better than potentially being tempted to sexual immorality. I'm just going to cut my self off. And yet that is really not the big idea. God didn't give us a mind, body, soul, a heart, so that we could cut ourselves up just because it's not perfect. No, no, that is a denial of God's grace. That you would think that that's what needs to happen, is that you cut yourself up, you mutilate yourself, and that is how you show your devotion to God, like you're earning it. The parable of the talents needs to be brought to bear here. Invest the talents. But the wicked servant who is rebuked is the one who buries his talents in a field. How much more so would it be wicked to tell others to bury their talents in a field or to deny that the master has given you any talents whatsoever? To get angry and belligerent when somebody starts talking about these talents that have been entrusted to them. Well, who are you to talk about the master's talents? Why did the master give you those talents and he didn't give those talents to me? You're probably just going to squander those talents. You should probably bury them in a field lest you invest them poorly and lose the master's money. Some people seem to think that's the height of spirituality, that we would give that kind of advice. And I say, nonsense. To say... That there are only sins in our individual differences, or near enough, is to say that there is only vice in us, there is no virtue, there's no potential for virtue, there's no capacity for, for virtue that's particular to us, which is to say that there's no God-given capacity for virtue, which does not honor and glorify God, when God says he has given us that capacity. Otherwise, it would make zero sense whatsoever that he calls us to utilize the capacity. How cruel would that be? But God's not cruel. Only some people who warp and twist and distort what God has said. They're the ones who are cruel and abusive. Twisting the scriptures. I suppose someone who thinks the Bible is primarily or solely good for bashing others We'll miss these things either accidentally or on purpose, but we cannot miss these things. We can't afford to. Now take the Myers-Briggs type indicator, for instance, which I talked about in our last episode before I knew actually that my cousin had recently done a podcast about this. Just for any help, my wife was having our son's take the test to see what they got. And then she took it again and got a different result than she did a few years back. And so I took it again. But 16personalities.com, for instance, breaks down the possibilities into four broad groupings. And no, this isn't all-inclusive, but welcome to finitude. 
ladies and gentlemen. We are made up of parts and not like God with regards to being simple. The doctrine of divine simplicity does not apply to us. It applies to God. That's part of why. That's part of why it's particular to God's godness, the ontology of God. We are made up of parts, and it's okay to recognize those parts as being distinct, separate, in different combinations, within us. That is okay. That is not a denial of God's godness or what God calls us to in being imitators of him. But 16personalities.com breaks this down. There are four broad groupings of combinations. Analysts, diplomats, sentinels, and explorers. For analysts, there are four types. Architects, logicians, commanders, and debaters. For diplomats, there are four kinds. Advocates, mediators, protagonists, and campaigners. For sentinels, there are logicians, defenders, executives, and consuls, and then making up the explorers category or groupings. There are virtuosos, adventurers, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. Now, I look at this list and I think, you know what? Sure, you can have analysts, diplomats, sentinels, and explorers who do bad things. That does not mean that we deny the neutrality or the potential for good in someone being an analyst, a diplomat, a sentinel, or an explorer. And yes, quite frankly, again, welcome to Finitude 101. I'll be your professor in our introductory class. To be an architect is an opportunity cost, and you might not be able to be all these things all at once, because guess what? You're not God. God is God. It is helpful to have architects when something needs planned and built. It's helpful to have adventurers when we need somebody to go out there and explore the world and push the boundaries and make maps of parts we haven't been to and need to know our way around in when we get there, if we're going there, if we're expanding, if we're fulfilling this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, which we're going to get into in a minute more in depth with Kevin DeYoung's article from First Things Magazine. But I previously tested as a commander. You know what? All the time a finite creature like me spends being a commander is time maybe, maybe, I am not able to spend being a protagonist, for instance. My wife tested out as an adventurer last time she tested. And then this most recent time, she scored as a mediator. Now you could say, oh, well, you should be able to do both. Everybody's doing all these things all the time, all the same time, to the same degree. No, no, sorry. Again, I refer you back to the difference between us and God. There's a legitimacy to doing any of these things. There's an impracticality and an impossibility to doing all these things all the same time, individually, to their utmost. 
and we're not called to that. God alone is capable of that kind of being. We are not. Now, my son, my second oldest, somehow took the test and didn't save his results, and so he's going to have to retake it. We're going to make him retake it. We think it's that useful. But wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if he tested as an entrepreneur or a debater or a logician. That would not shock me. Also, it's interesting. There's a difference between a logician and a logistician. A logician is an innovative inventor with an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, INTP. Meanwhile, a logistician, practical and fact-minded individuals whose reliability cannot be doubted. And again, can this be commercialized, gamified, made into something that is flattery? to try and get people to pay money and give their attention and be manipulatable? Sure. Can this also be a tool when approached rightly to being a student of your own heart? Yes. For instance, if I retrace my steps on why I might have tested two years ago and four years ago as a commander type, and now I'm testing as a protagonist type, if I'm honest about what has happened in the past two to four years, and then before that, when I tested as a architect type, if I'm looking at life circumstances and what was going on in the world, what was going on in our family and our social circle, and what I believed God was calling me to be about and to do and to prepare for in these different times, it fits very neatly that the building blocks were there and the choices and the building blocks all feed into one another. And the question is, with regards to being self-controlled about it, can we know and recognize what's happening and be intentional about it? More to the point, is it possible to be self-controlled in a sophisticated, precise way if you don't? recognize the individual components. Like I said, my wife tested most recently as a mediator. and Before that, she was an adventurer. Well, what is a mediator about? Poetic, kind, altruistic people, always eager to help a good cause. Well, that's my wife. Yeah, definitely. A few years ago, though, I would say the adventurer type probably did fit her more closely. Flexible and charming artists, always ready to explore and experience something new. Getting into sewing, doing arts and crafts, our kids all being younger. Much more interested in doing creative things. And it's not like that all just went away, but now what's at the fore is especially with our kids being older, us being older, family and friends in a more extended sense, having different needs that we are trying to help them to meet socially, mentally, emotionally, relationally, physically. I think 
that poetic part of her is still definitely there in her sewing. And yet, let's say, for instance, with the sewing, she's sewing something strategically to be kind to someone else, to make them know that they're loved, they're cared about, clothing them with dignity, for instance, when they might have been going through a hard time here recently. Or they might need some encouragement because look at what's going on. Things have gotten a bit dark in the past couple of years, to put it mildly. But this need not be seen as flattery or justification for sin. Take my own approach and perspective to my family taking this test recently and testing out differently. Our son Josiah testing out as an advocate a very inspiring and tireless idealist. Well, that's him. My son Daniel testing out as a consul, ESFJ, extraordinarily caring, social, popular, always eager to help. That is very much him. Yeah, he is much more extroverted. First Peter 3.7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter does not say, likewise, husbands, rebuke your wife for all the ways in which she differs from you in temperament, interest, perspective, etc. He doesn't say that. This is talking about being considerate. And how can you be considerate if you're not paying attention? How can you not study your wife and try and pay attention to Is she more of a thinker? Is she more of a feeler? Is she quicker to judge or to prospect? Is she more assertive? Is she more turbulent? Is she more intuitive or is she more observant? There are differences between these things, and it can be helpful to recognize the combination of traits in your wife. In fact, I can't see how it's possible to live with my wife in an understanding way if I'm not looking for, whether formally through this kind of a test or informally through just watching and listening over time, if I'm not looking for where my wife is at with regards to these things, and yes, plenty of others besides, I don't see how I can live with my wife in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So even there, with the paradigm that there is male and female, he created them, and that women are the weaker vessel. You honor that difference and distinction. You're not justifying all the ways that women can biff it You're not making excuses. You're not pretending there's no difference. No, no. Don't be simple. So also, it's it's the exact same problem in the opposite direction. If my wife says, I have no need of you because you're not a woman. You're a man and your mind and your heart work differently by virtue of you being a man. The inverse of what Peter is saying here about the woman being the weaker vessel, is that I, as the man, am the stronger vessel. That might intimidate my wife. But you know what? If she can honor me in being the stronger vessel and lean on that and know when and how and where the limits are of that, God can be very much honored in that. Our marriage can be stronger for that. And besides just the male-female dynamic, specific to me as a particular man, specific to my wife as a particular woman, 
there's a lot of glorious details to work out. And they're not just making decisions about who's going to take our son to class or who's got a doctor's appointment coming up or what's for dinner. So also I think of Ephesians 6, 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul does not say, Fathers, do not tell your children what they are doing right, or talk with them about what is praiseworthy in them, or help them to identify the unique ways God has gifted them, or what particular opportunities they may have in life to honor him, and those around them, given their gifting, lest they think you're justifying their sin. Paul doesn't say that. Now, an abusive person, a manipulative person, a warped person with a seared conscience might read this and think fathers do not provoke your children to anger means so long as I don't let my children ever show any anger. Check. I did it. That's like bypassing the alarm in a safety system. You still have the high pressure, the high level, the high temperature condition, regardless of whether you suppressed the little graphic showing up on your screen to tell you about it or remind you of it. There's a lot that goes into fathers do not provoke your children to anger. For instance, paying attention to what would unnecessarily, gratuitously, Provoke your children to anger, given who they are and given the circumstances. I think taking the MBTI or them taking the MBTI can be a helpful way, for one, that I demonstrate that I actually care how they're wired. For two, it can give me a lot of practical ideas for how to redirect them from sins of omission and commission to doing what is right. That's The discipline and instruction of the Lord is that I would teach them to be self-controlled, dignified, honorable, capable, confident in the Lord by God's grace to do good works. Not just to go around repenting of sin all the time, but to do good works that were prepared for us beforehand in Christ to walk in those. Again, Taking the MBTI, for example, the premise is that there are five aspects to personality, and sure, there could be more besides, fine. But for the purposes of this discussion, being finite creatures, let's look at these parts. Mind, energy, nature, tactics, identity. With regards to your mind, you could be introverted or you could be extroverted. With regards to your energy, you could be intuitive, you could be observant. With regards to your nature, you could be more of a thinker or more of a feeler. With regards to tactics, you could be more judging or more prospecting. With regards to identity, you could be more assertive or you could be more turbulent. More go with the flow or this is how it's going to be. I plan the work, I work the plan. Now, depending on your combination of scores, whether you are more one or the other, In each of these fives, you are said to belong to one of 16 or four times four possible combinations, which correspond to types. That's why the website is called 16personalities.com. There are 16 possibilities as far as combinations of these traits. And again, this is not the final word on who you are. 
But this is not an all or nothing business. I had a follow-up appointment with Colorado Allergy and Asthma Center yesterday in Fort Collins, Colorado to get prescriptions refilled for my asthma. And by the way, there is a psychological aspect, an emotional and mental aspect to what triggers my asthma, as in high stress can make it easier for some reason for me to have asthma attacks. But if I'm having an asthma attack due to allergens in my environment, let's say dust, pollen, pet dander, exercise, if I calm myself down, I can actually interrupt that feedback loop and hack it in some sense. And that's part of being self-controlled as well. But I go to the doctor's office and they put a little blood ox monitor on my finger to see what is my blood oxygenation. They have me do a breathing test to see how strong is my exhale and my inhale. What's my lung function? And what kind of a person would say, well, you know what? That's just one aspect of who you are, that you would take this breathing test, this lung function test. That's just one aspect of who you are. I mean, what can that really tell you to know how oxygenated your blood is? I have prescriptions, by the way. I have prescriptions for a rescue inhaler, for a steroid inhaler to manage my asthma, so I don't need to use the rescue inhaler when I remember to take the steroid inhaler daily. I have a nasal spray to help with antihistamine. I'm going to change up what medicines I'm taking, actually, or the doctor wants me to. Hopefully insurance agrees and approves. But we're going to change up which medicines I'm taking because some have side effects, yes. But the side effects are still better than dying because you can't breathe. So there's that. What kind of a person, what kind of an abusive person would say, well, I don't think you really need that inhaler. You should just follow Jesus and read your Bible and pray more and repent of your sin. I think you're approaching that rescue inhaler like a functional savior. You know what? I read my Bible and I don't see what you're talking about as being justified as something that should now dominate my life. I think you're being manipulative. I think you're trying to bully me. I think you're trying to control me by playing a guilt trip game to get to looking very important yourself, to get power. And it's dirty and it's wrong and it's bad testimony. And I rebuke you for it. That's wicked. Stop it. So also with this, I do a lung function test. They have something to check my blood ox. They ask about how often I'm needing to use the rescue inhaler. And somebody, you know, same also with these tests, right? It's not feasible. It's not feasible for the doctor or the nurse practitioner at Colorado Allergy and Asthma Center to follow me around all day, waiting and watching to see how often I use my rescue inhaler. They ask me. And I have to remember. So, that, yeah, there's a contingency there. 
do I remember how many times I've used it a day for the past few weeks? And that's going to go into a, an arbitrary score on some level to say how managed well my asthma symptoms are. Sure, it's imperfect. That doesn't mean it's worthless. I do a lung function test, and the gal says to me, the nurse practitioner says to me yesterday, well, your your lung function is, uh, you know, it's really pretty much what it was last time you saw us, last June, which I'm not happy about. I don't really feel like the medicine's been helping enough. So let's try and change it up. And I stopped her there politely, but I said, you know, well, one thing to consider is, and this is on me, I really only come in when I'm not feeling well. I don't I don't come see you guys when I'm feeling well. So that that's probably skewing the results, actually, of the lung function tests. I'm typically coming in when I've completely run out of my rescue inhaler and I'm out of refills and harvest is going on, spring is in the air, lots of pollen, lots of irritants that I'm allergic to that trigger my asthma. So, I mean, it's it's probably pretty skewed. She's like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'd like you to come in in three months. Make sure you're taking your medicine regularly. And I'd like to do a lung function test when you're feeling good. So we can kind of have a, a range of what your asthma is like with the meds or, and without the meds. There was one that she had prescribed me called sodium montelicast, by the way which some people say contributes to anxiety, depression, trouble controlling anger, bad dreams. And I told her yesterday, I said, you know, I I do wonder if some of what I've been dealing with the past, let's say, year, year and a half that I've been on that, I do wonder if some of that hasn't been due to this medication. She says, I would, I want you to stop taking it. Great. Good. I'm glad we were looking at the particulars and not just going to somebody who's going to say, I rebuke you. It is okay to look at parts and portions of who we are and what's going on with us mentally, emotionally, physically, what our personality type is, what our temperament is, what our giftings are, what our interests are. It's okay to look at those things and to be asking the question, how can I honor God best, serve God most faithfully, most productively? How can I honor the people around me and serve the people around me most productively, most joyfully, most helpfully with what God has gifted me? Not only is it okay, not only is it all right, if you want to, I would say it's an exceedingly good thing to do. And someone who wants to turn that into an opportunity to rebuke you for sin categorically or warn you off of it is warped. And they have a seared conscience. And they need Jesus. And they need to get right with God, quite frankly. But let's move on. That's enough on this topic. More could be said. It's a big topic. 
That's quite enough of that for the time being. And we're going to run out of time with regards to this podcast episode. If I don't tell you now about an excellent, an excellent, excellent essay that Kevin DeYoung published in First Things Magazine titled The Case for Kids. When I say that this was an excellent essay, I think I'm being understated. This was one of the single best things I have ever read on the internet, bar none. This was fantastic, and I was so very encouraged by it. And I want to share with you some highlights. I've got a lot here highlighted because it was actually a very, very long uh, piece that he wrote. But one thing right out the gate, opening line, and I quote, the most significant thing happening in the world may very well be a thing that is not happening. Men and women are not having children. The biblical logic has been reversed and the barren womb has said, enough. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. He continues a little later in that first section outside of Africa, which is home to 41 of the 50 most fertile nations. The planet faces a bleak demographic future. Elon Musk has been warning about this, by the way. I've been warning about this, by the way. Lots of folks who are not into uh, hating ourselves because we're humans are buying into climate change catastrophism and alarmism. Lots of folks who don't just hate kids because they're selfish monsters have been warning about this. We are headed for civilizational collapse level demographic problems if we don't change soon, like right now. And I quote, in 2007, the United States had a TFR of 2.1, whereas the figure for the European Union was below 1.6. But since then, the U.S. birth rate has fallen by 20%. That's a lot, by the way. It's a lot. To as low as 1.73, according to some estimates, what looked like American exceptionalism less than a generation ago now looks more like delay, which Douglas Murray talks about this in The Strange Death of Europe. And he says flat out, the U.S. is 20 to 30 years behind Europe with regards to undoing itself ending itself, committing suicide civilizationally. That bears out in the birth rate declining. And just like in Europe, here in the U.S., the solution from the powers that be is not to encourage American moms and dads to have more kids. Quite the opposite. Their solution is to import folks from all over the rest of the world. Let's import folks from the Middle East, from Africa, who are Muslims, they'll have lots of kids. Let's import folks from Latin America, they'll have lots of kids. They will make up the workforce and do the jobs that Americans by birth supposedly don't want to do. And why do we not want to do them? Well, again, it feeds back into the social engineering project of the past hundred years. Thanks, progressivism. Thanks, globalism. 
in prioritizing so highly the rule of experts and the need for a college education, the need for higher education, the need for increased secularization, increased prosperity and material wealth. We've told a whole lot of Americans for decades now that if they want to amount to anything in life, they've got to go get that college diploma and go get some white collar position somewhere. And if they don't do that, well, then they have failed. And that's a sin. No, no, it's not a sin if you refuse to get married until you're past childbearing years and you're old and you're tired and you're spent. That's not a sin to refuse to get married or to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. No, no, no. The sin is if you refuse to go to college and rack up a whole bunch of debt. Speaking of enslavement. TFR, by the way, is total fertility rate, if you don't know. So the total fertility rate is the average number of children that would be born to a woman over her lifetime. The TFR for the U.S. may be as low as 1.73. It has never been lower in the history of the United States, by the way. Continuing on, Kevin DeYoung writes, Our malady is a lack of faith, and nowhere is the disbelief more startling than in the countries that once made up Christendom. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, God promised a delighted Abraham, Genesis 26.4. Today, in the lands of Abraham's offspring, that blessing strikes most as a curse. Absolutely right. We've got it backwards because of who we're listening to. Continuing on, and I love this bit. Quote, when family formation fails, so does the inculcation of faith. This is Mary Eberstadt's argument in How the West Really Lost God. Family decline is not merely a consequence of religious decline. It is also a cause of it. Religious people are more inclined toward family life, but it is also the case that something about family life inclines people toward religion. There is no need to prioritize chicken or egg. It is... The indissoluble connection that matters. The fortunes of faith and family rise and fall together. And he's got a great quote from Mary Aberstadt, whose book is excellent, by the way. You should definitely check it out. It was the first book I read this year, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Aberstadt wrote, In an age when many people live lives that contradict the traditional Christian moral code, the mere existence of that code becomes a lightning rod for criticism and vituperation, which further drives some people away from church. End quote. This is very important to recognize. This is part of why churches are shrinking. Young Christian people are not having kids. Some are. If you can still call my wife and I young Christian people, I'll be 36 in a few weeks, by the way. Yes, only 36. We have eight kids. I'm only 36 almost. My wife is still 35. We celebrate our 16th wedding anniversary, the week of Thanksgiving. And we're in church. And Mary Aberstadt has got a really great point. We have kids and 
we suddenly realize, you know what? These kids need to be trained up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's a tall order. That's hard. That's difficult, especially the more there are. And so Mary Aberstadt reframes the question. You know, typically people assume you have big families because you're religious or because you're a Roman Catholic or you're a Mormon or you're a very conservative Protestant or maybe you're a Mennonite or something like that. I would say it is just as true that you may be in church because you have a big family, because you have lots of kids, because you're trying to figure out how do I instill virtue, discipline, honor in these children all by myself? That's a tall order. I could use some help. I could use some encouragement. I could use some prayer. (laughs) This is part and parcel of husbands and wives staying married also. That we would stay in church. Which is also a factor of whether it's feasible to have kids. But the church has a responsibility. Young people have a responsibility. Parents have a responsibility. Husbands and wives have a responsibility. We do not belong to ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. We were bought with price. And we are called to more. And yet, why aren't we aspiring to more? Along the lines of what God says is more. Kevin DeYoung has some explanations. He says, And I quote, a combination of moral pragmatism and liberal social optimism did the trick for most. 20th century Americans became convinced that the new technologies that would give their fewer children better lives than they themselves enjoyed. They saw birth control as a prudent economic altruism. They prioritized observable results over first principles. Above all, McNamara insists they believed that fewer children meant more security and more happiness. Almost a century later, that moral calculus has probably changed very little. End quote. Here, by the way, DeYoung is referencing Trent McNamara, author of the 2018 book Birth Control and American Modernity, which I would love to get my hands on at some point in the midst of all this other reading. Speaking of finitude again, can only read so many books at once. If you're reading some books, it's going to mean you can't be reading others in the meantime. This is true. This is true, not just with regards to having children. It's also true with regards to when we encourage our young people to get married. We are not encouraging them to. We are trying to discourage them in many cases. We ask them to leap tall buildings and prove their Christianity before we're going to give them a blessing to get married, even though it may be their desire to be good Christians and to serve God, which actually is driving their desire to get married. We should be encouraging it by all means and teaching them how to be good husbands and wives and future fathers and mothers. That should be the norm, not some outlier that we qualify to death. 
because we're trying to be inclusive, because we're trying not to hurt anybody's feelings. And I quote De Young, The Bible encourages us to see the beauty of God's creation, and the Bible is not indifferent to the frogs and dogs and fireflies. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, Psalm 156. But the Bible's narrative arc is not geocentric, as if the redemptive story were mainly about earth, or biocentric, as if it were mainly about plants and animals. The Bible's story is anthropocentric. God sent his son to save those made in his image. What's more, as those made in his image, we are not an alien species on the planet, malignant tumors that only devour and destroy. We are sub-creators. We are meant to tend the garden. We can solve problems and make the world more inhabitable. If the climate crisis is as dire as we are told, lasting solutions will come from the efforts of our children, not their elimination. Amen, 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 amen. 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 I would love to shake Kevin DeYoung's hand and high-five him, actually, Yes. Yes. What is it I'm always saying when the topic of climate change comes up? The folks who are hyping climate change, alarmism, catastrophism, they are channeling a lot of neo-paganism, a lot of pantheism. They are not trying to save the world for us and our children. They are trying to save the world from us, which is to say they're trying to steal it. Kevin DeYoung also quotes Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. He points out, as I see it, my word's not his, that this echoes Jeremiah 29, which I talk about quite often. Picking up in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These are good things. These are good things that God has for us. They are to be welcomed with thanksgiving and gladness, and stewarded well, and invested well not as a distraction from what God has for us, but as the furtherance of what God has for us and why he's put us here and what we're supposed to be about. DeYoung says he's not trying to make a theological case for or against birth control a bit later. 
And then he continues on to say what he is trying to do. And I quote, but I do urge them, and here he's speaking about Christians, to have more children. How many more? I cannot say. Many couples must weigh risks pertaining to age, illness, miscarriage, or difficult pregnancies. But more than two kids and more kids than you think you can handle might be a good place to start. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Smooth seas never made a skillful sailor. As my friend Chad Cohoon titled his parting letter when he left Chevron here a few weeks ago. More children than you think you can handle might be a good place to start. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Does that mean that you should have an infinite number? He very much doesn't advocate that. I wouldn't advocate that. It's okay to pause. It's okay to say, you know what? We got a lot of really rough stuff going on. And I think natural family planning is a great idea. I think birth control is a terrible idea. Look at the research. Do your homework. Birth control, we know many people who used it early on in their marriage because they wanted to take a few years, travel the world, focus on each other, which I interpret as more or less focus on themselves. Then when they decided they wanted to have kids, they couldn't and they can't and they have a hard time because in some sense, the reproductive system has aged out and in some sense, they've poisoned the well. They talked their body into not being able to to have kids. And now that they want to have kids, they don't got it. So I would say, avoid birth control. Natural family planning, look into it. When we've utilized that, it's worked pretty well. And when uh, we get pregnant anyways, it's typically not a failure of the natural family planning. But it's some combination of the good Lord deciding it was time for this child to be coming into the world for a good purpose on purpose and on our part i think an unspoken many times realization that we would be content and give thanks not that we're eager to have more kids but we embrace that the good lord has a plan and a purpose for us having kids I'm totally on board with what Kevin DeYoung has to say here. He's exactly right. More than two. Let's start there. Let's, let's, you can't be multiplying if you're having two. You're just replacing yourselves. That's not being fruit, that's, that's not being fruitful and multiplying. Fill the earth and subdue it. Jeremiah 29. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, increase in the land and do not decrease. And what are we doing? We're decreasing. We're decreasing in the land. He continues, though the vast majority of people in our church-dominated lives have been extremely supportive of our big family, occasionally we get a vibe from strangers that communicates, are you foolish or just ignorant? When our kids attended public school, we constantly heard that stories and examples in the classroom needed to, quote, represent the diversity of our community, end quote, which always meant more stories about LGBTQ families, never about big families going to church curious that more of the social engineering not for no reason by the way 
And have I mentioned lately, and this is why we homeschool, this is why we homeschool. If you haven't bought it yet, go buy my book. And this is why we homeschool. Encourage the people you know. You know people. You know people who are troubled by what their kids are being exposed to. They feel trapped. Buy them a copy of my book. Maybe I can talk them into it thereby. To quote Kevin DeYoung, with fewer children, parents become more child-centric. And as parents become more child-centric, they do not see how they could possibly have more than one or two children. Even good parents, perhaps especially good parents, are susceptible to the assumptions of kindergarten, where children rule the roost and moms and dads are expected to be all things to their children. How can parents have more than a couple kids if each child needs from the parent a constant companion, camp director, gourmet chef, vacation planner, coach, and omnipresent safety net. Yes, 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 yes. Amen, amen, amen. I can say my younger brother and my sister-in-law, they have one. And their home operates very differently than my wife's in my home with eight. Very differently. And I am not sad that we have eight kids. But it would be absolutely unrealistic for us to pay as much attention to any one of our kids as my brother and my sister-in-law pay to my nephew. It would be totally unreasonable. And also, (laughs) may I just say, it's totally unnecessary. And I'm not so sure that it would be for the best if my kids had that much individual attention from my wife or I. I don't think that would be good for them. And I don't think that would be good for society. And I think a lot of what we see in society is the product of parents divorcing or not getting married in the first place and then trying to make up for it by spoiling their children, aka giving them whatever they want in a way that is not loving, in a way that does not set them up, to be intuitive about honoring either the Lord or the people around them. There's a lot that has to be unlearned in following Christ if your whole life up to that point where you put your faith in Christ, where God saves you, begins sanctifying you, has all been about you. You, 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 you. You just get whatever you want all the time. And a lot of our theology reflects that. A lot of our ecclesiology reflects that. A lot of our church polity and fellowship reflects that. A lot of teaching, a lot of popular Christian music and popular Christian books and even Christian schools and Christian universities, so-called, reflect that. It is not for the best. It is not. In the last several paragraphs, DeYoung writes a few things with regards to being a conservative and how being a conservative relates to this question of having kids. He says, part of being a conservative is being realistic about what we can achieve on earth. The disintegration of the family will not be undone in five years, maybe 50 if the Lord allows. Still, we can do our part to promote social health in the here and now and to sow seeds for a later harvest. To that end, I offer two modest proposals. And the first one he gives is to put the institution and well-being of the family at the center of a renewed conservatism. Absolutely. Amen, amen, amen. School choice is a winning proposition. 
making it easier for intact homes with a mom and a dad and the kids to homeschool, to own their own home on their own property. That's a winning proposition. Encouraging more trades and not gender studies, not the history of feminism majors, not underwater basket weaving. No. Go learn to be an electrician. Go learn how to swing a hammer effectively. Go learn how to build things. Go learn how to invent things. Go learn how to make things that expand the carrying capacity instead of contracting it. Go learn how to grow food in an intelligent, productive, fruitful way. Second, De Young says it's critical that conservative Christians, and I quote, place it, that is the family, at the center of our lives. And here he anticipates the challenge before you've even had a chance to say it. Not a God, of course. Some of you were thinking it. Some of you were going to do what my cousin Tim does every time he comes across something he doesn't like. And you were going to call it a functional savior, an idol. Again, that's laziness. Not a God, of course, but one of the very best things God wants us to pursue. Christian schools should reassess whether they are preparing students just for college and career or whether they are preparing them also for the family. Amen. 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 Let me tell you just a bit, a little bit, briefly. When I talk to my sons and my daughter about doing their chores, doing their schoolwork, how they relate to one another, how they dress, how they treat other people outside our home, how they expect other people to treat one another outside the home, showing up on time, being considerate while they're there, listening first, not interrupting, not talking over others. When I talk with my kids about that, I very, very often bring it back to when they are out on their own and a husband in the case of my sons, or a wife, in the case of my daughter, when they are a father, when they are a mother, in the case of my daughter. How is it going to work if this is the way you're relating versus that? Is that going to be beneficial? Is that going to be blessed? Is that going to be profitable? Is that going to be productive? Is that going to honor God or the people around you that you're responsible to? How is that going to work? Kevin DeYoung is absolutely right. Absolutely right. Homek. DeYoung concludes in his final section, and I quote, We must understand marriage as the exchange of duties and obligations, not merely of emotions and experiences, And we must admit, scary as this sounds to me as a parent of four teenagers, 
that many young men and women should be getting married earlier. The post-war baby boom was actually a marriage boom. The average size of families did not increase as much as the number of people forming families did. Since 1950, the average age of first marriage for women has increased from just over 20 years old to almost 28. Women are having fewer children, in part because they are having fewer married years in which to have children, end quote. So I wrote and published at the very last day of 2020, and this is why we homeschool. I'm working on, I'm actually making really good progress here lately, and this is why we got married. This right here, this, part of why I love what Kevin DeYoung just wrote here, it it, it fits perfectly. It fits, it fits like a glove with why I'm writing what I'm writing right now in terms of my book. And this is why we got married. Women are having fewer children in part because they're having fewer married years in which to have children. We should be encouraging our young people to get married, to marry for the right reasons, to marry the right person, to plan on being married to that person for the rest of their lives. So help them, God. And the next book, Lord willing, is going to be, and this is why we had children. Because what we need desperately is to break away from the very progressive, the very materialistic, the very foolish and unbiblical attitudes which have seized the church, which have taken the church captive, which are driving even Christian young people to get married later and later, to have few to no children, to send their kids off to the public schools, to look just like the world only a little nicer, a little kinder, a little more polite, a little cleaner cut. In his final closing line, DeYoung leaves us with this gem. The God who has put eternity into our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11, also means to put children into the womb, Malachi 2.15. When we grasp one, we will grasp the other. Amen, 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 amen what he said. Not either or, both and. Children are a heritage from Yahweh. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. The children of one's youth are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That's biblical. I don't care if it gets flack. That will be blessed. If we are doing it, because we honor God, because we honor his word, that will be blessed. But that's all the time I've got. I got to run. JP also asked me my thoughts concerning the group Evangelicals and Catholics Together. That's just going to have to wait until another episode, a future episode, for us to unpack it. Keep an eye out for that in the coming days. I do hope to get to it over the weekend. But hit subscribe if you haven't yet. You can definitely subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer, or you can go over 
to the gear at ashleymulletshow.com to get email alerts when new episodes come out. I typically have uh, a write-up for the episodes, which is a little bit differently worded summary than what comes through in the episode description on Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Audible Podcasts, etc., etc. But do hit subscribe, check it out, head on over to Facebook. You can follow the page there as well if you prefer, if that's easier. Do leave a review too. If you follow the Facebook page, do me a favor, uh, rate it and leave a, a positive review. Unless you don't like the podcast, in which case, I don't know why you're listening. And uh, you probably won't leave a negative review, so I'm not worried about it. But like I said, I got to run. We got a biblical training group tonight. I need to help go get the house in shape for that. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.